We map these lands, but they are not ours. The author and publisher of Detroit and 50 Maps acknowledges the history of the Wawiatong Nong, what is now called Detroit, Michigan, and wish to honor the indigenous people who continue to steward this land. So up next, Authentically Detroit sits down with anthropologist, cartographer, and information designer Alex B. Hill. Donna and I will learn more about the Detroit voting map as well as his book, Detroit in 50 Maps. But first, this week's hot take. Detroit officers fired 38 shots at a 20-year-old black man experiencing a mental health crisis. Keep it locked. Authentically Detroit starts in a minute. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters, for Detroiters. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well play well, be well. Visit ecn-detroit.org. Hey, y'all, it's Orlando. We just want to let you know that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast episode are those of the co-hosts and guests and not their sponsoring institutions. Now, let's start the show. Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to another episode of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the WDET studios. We are content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you for listening in and supporting our efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And it's time for Hot Takes, where we run down some of the week's top headlines in the city of Detroit. This week, Donna and I have Alex B. Hill joining us. Alex, (laughs) welcome to Authentically Detroit. Thank you so much. This is awesome. I think this is the best show in the whole city. Are are you serious? (laughs) Totally serious. Wow. Well, it's an honor (laughs) to have you on. We've been wanting to have you on to talk about Detroit and 50 Maps. Y'all, I'm holding his book. If you haven't gotten it, you need to go and get it. I got it signed today. I so I know Alex. We're we're friendly in email and we're friendly on the socials. But I finally met him today in three D. So it was it's really cool to meet you and thank you for yes, coming same. on. Thanks yes. so much. Yes, Donna. How's this day finding you? Well, Happy Indigenous Peoples Day. That's right. You know, listen. Sometimes you got to rename things in order to bring some clarity and yeah. significance to that. Um, I didn't think we had this day out and I, off. You know, I remember that right because I'm actually CEO of the organization, but one of the staff said we're off on Monday. And I was like, we're not off on Columbus Day. And I was thinking that we 
had, you know, historically been off on Columbus Day or whatever they call it. And it was really offensive to me that we would celebrate that as a holiday. But then I remembered that we um, celebrated Indigenous People Day, and I'm really happy to do that. I'm actually happy to start a show with the opening you just gave on Indigenous People Day and to be talking about the maps of Detroit and giving some historical context. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. I am excited uh, because I woke up feeling, number one, rested, but I woke up in a clean house. And let me tell you, my house had not been deeply cleaned for, you know, it's <laughs> it's actually an embarrassment if I go ahead and tell you how long it has, has been since I had the opportunity to deeply clean. I've been, like, running, you know, nonstop. But this past weekend, I chose myself. I chose my home. And it felt really good. And to wake up in a clean house is unmatched. It's unmatched. So I'm feeling good. The sun is out. It was a beautiful fall day. The trees are treeing like no other. And I love it. I love so it. So now I have to come over now that it's been deeply cleaned before you tell Donna, me. you have an <laughs> this open is a invitation. bad time. <laughs> you know, especially because my house has not been deeply cleaned. <laughs> so I need to I, I need to see what that feels like. Yeah, I've been yeah. a little busy too. Get inspired. And um, you know, we had the right gala on Saturday and yeah. everything that that entailed. Yeah. So unfortunately, I got about three quarters there. I started. Mm. <laughs> what about you, Alex? <laughs> I can't say my house is clean. I've got two kids under four. And one on the way. <laughs> That's right. And y'all have been busy. <laughs> wow. Congratulations. Congratulations, Alex. We're trying to pump out some home improvement projects. <laughs> <laughs> so we have some extra space. That's oh, ready. man. I love it. Congratulations. <laughs> so when, when is the, the one on the way due? Uh, end of January. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. soon. Very soon. <laughs> oh my God, y'all are brave. Yeah. Y'all are brave. I, oh, I, I've always said one and done. If I, you know if what? that, you know what? I just can't wait to see Papa Orlando. <laughs> I love. The I baby. remember when I brought Luna up. She to loves work me one immediately, day and she just that smiled for him. She wasn't me. smiling at anybody. She was like, "Hey," and put her she arms loved out. Loved. I don't me. know if that means she's a good judge of character, or she was too young to understand. Oh, what was happening. good judge of character. <laughs> I'm going to err on that side. <laughs> Listen, y'all, we got something pretty serious for hot takes. Uh, Detroit officers fired 38 shots at a 20-year-old black man experiencing a mental health crisis, police say. So it's a 20-year-old black man uh, here in the city of Detroit. He was killed after five Detroit police officers fired 38 shots at him in roughly three seconds. I think there were about 15 wounds. His name is Porter Burks, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was experiencing a psychotic break when his brother called police and told officers who responded to the call that he was concerned for Burks and the safety of the community. Um, and so one of the responding officers was also on the crisis intervention team. So that person had been trained for something like this um, to help deescalate these kind of uh, mental health crises. 48 hours of training makes 48. everybody mm. an expert. It makes every. <laughs> so uh, the officers, um, let me say this. Burke's brother told the officers when they arrived at the scene that Burks was experiencing a mental health crisis and was armed with a knife and had slashed the tires on his brother's car. Burks repeatedly refused to put down the knife and charged at one of the officers without warning. The officer, and this is quote, the officer fearing his safety and the other officers fearing for their partner's safety fired their weapons. This is from the chief of police, Chief White. Despite 
this horrific act, the officers were able to quickly transition to first aid mode and begin to render first aid. The police handcuffed Burks's dead body before taking him to the hospital. The five officers are now on administrative leave pending the outcome of a state investigation. This is just a sad story all around. Donna, what say you? I mean, the pox on um, the police who shot him and um, put that many bullets into him, over 20 bullets, and then handcuffed this corpse. Um, you know, if only they had realized he was human. Mm. If only they understood that this was somebody who was loved and cared for, who had a disease like so many people do, but whose life had value. But instead, they saw a black man with a mental illness, and he had to go. Um, now, we're not going to see pictures of him dressed up in little sailor suits in his bedroom with teddy bears like we do when white people go out and kill black people. Um, and the police bring them in safely, <laughs> even mm. though they are armed with automatic weapons or whatever. The police know how to de-escalate white people. With a black man, you got to put him down. You know, kind of like you do a pit bull dog. You got to put him down because he poses a danger. You got to, you know, whatever. And I think a lot of this stems from a lot of the racist beliefs that people have about black men not feeling pain. Beliefs people have about black men somehow being having superhuman strength mm. that you have to use excessive force because um, otherwise your life is in danger. Um, so I think it's um, problematic in that sense and very sad. And um, equally sad, his family had to call the police when he was having a mental breakdown. And this was not his first psychotic break. Mm-hmm. Um, the news reports several incidents of psychotic breaks, but we don't have a system in place to help provide care and treatment for mentally ill ill people. Um, Today, when I was on my way here, I got a call from somebody who you probably know, Orlando, who was reaching out on behalf of a friend who's a clinical social worker who's working with a 20-year-old who has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He's a nice guy. He's a good person. But he did some things and he went too far and the question is, what do we do for people who have these illnesses? The answer is not kill them. Well, I think mm-hmm. that, I think, you know. But I mean, it, it is, go on, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I just think that, you know, this this thing, reading this and hearing about it, it it, it sent chills through my body. And I am, <laughs> I don't know how people perceive me. Sometimes they think I they perceive the opposite. But I am a friend to the police here in the city of Detroit. I've worked closely with the Detroit Police Department as a member of the 5th Precinct Community Relations Council. My brother is a police officer. That does not uh, stop me or uh, makes me withhold my critique of the Detroit Police Department or his chief. And you have five officers on this scene and one of him. One of him with a knife, right? Mm. We couldn't figure out any other way to de-escalate him charging at one of the officers, but to fire 38 shots in three seconds and to hit him, he was actually hit and wounded with 15, 15 wounds on his body. Right. I think this this is more than just... Uh, you know, de-escalation or stopping a threat. This was execution in my book. And I feel like nobody is saying that. Um, we, the jury is still out on whether Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy will pursue charges of these five officers. The officer's identity is protected. Um, Chief White in his press conference vouched essentially in so many words for the actions of these officers. But I think people, I think Detroiters, I think black people know in their body 
There's something that goes on in our bodies mm-hmm. when we see this, when we hear about this. It's a, we have a response, an emotional and a traumatic one. And when our body feels it before we can put words to it, there's something off about this entire story. And I cannot wait for more details to come off. But, you know, 48 hours of training, like Donna said, is nowhere near enough. The, 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 the answer, once again, is not to kill folks with these but mental illnesses. But it's also mm-hmm. not to call the police. That too. And families don't have options. And that's what I was getting at, is that people live in fear of sometimes their loved ones who have these breaks and in fear for them. And there's not good options for what do we do to intervene to protect their lives while also protecting ourselves. Our society has pretty much abandoned people who have mental health issues. Um, You're absolutely right. And I'm reading this book, My Grandma's Hands. Have you read that? No. Mm. Oh, he... The, the author of the book talks about how trauma is experienced in our bodies and then goes on. And there's a lot of, um, of information in there about policing and the way police officers are traumatized by their experiences, their lived experiences as officers and also bring their traumatic histories and their racial biases to the table. And it's not, just white police officers who have a racial bias. Absolutely, All people have a racial bias against black people, people of all races. You have to decolonize your mind. You have to retrain your thinking to not see things that we're programmed to believe in our society. Um, and so that 48 hours of training, um, you know, he, she talks about it in this book, or rather, I think it's written by a woman. Um, she talks about the fact that um, you have this lizard brain and the lizard brain reacts before you have a chance to think. And if the lizard brain has been programmed to believe there's a threat. That lizard brain is going to shoot. We need to do something to reprogram lizard brains. And she has outlined a number of steps and things. It's really exciting to me because our director of the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, Naomi Cawthorn, told me about the book. So, of course, I had to buy it because I'm, I'm an impulsive book buyer. Um, but it's really got some good <laughs> messages in there. And I can't wait to finish reading it and perhaps bring somebody in to describe some alternatives to this. But I don't think police training helps. I also think that, um, you know, why, would, why do you have five police officers there in the first place when there's one man with a gun? That was an excessive response. With a knife. A with knife. a knife. I'm sorry, with a knife. Mm-hmm. That's an excessive response. So I also think that you have to look at how policing is looked at in our community. Um, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the, the specifics around like, why, they, why they would dispatch, dispatch so, uh, so many officers. But you know, the but other if you thing... Were, the other if thing you were that, schizophrenic and you were having some mental health problems... And five people with guns were surrounding you. Right. Yeah. Would that de-escalate? That wouldn't de-escalate. But you know, one of the things you know, one of the details of the story also is that the the brother called the police because he felt like he was in danger and the community was in danger. So I'm not. I I don't know what the rationale is around how many officers get gets dispatched for something like this. But my my the the other point that I want to make is. Every time something like this happens, we hear about the officers being scared and fearing for their safety. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I get, I why get. are we, if, if you scared, 
Right. I think there I think there's a threshold, right, where we where we need to qualify fear um, and be and being scared and timid as as a police officer, especially when you got four other officers on the scene and this man only has a knife. But, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the thing is, the brother called the brother was obviously frantic, right? Yeah. You might need to deescalate that situation. His fear. He's at a frightened state and he says something. I do believe that if there was good police training, you would not have five armed people approaching somebody who is obviously having some mental health challenges holding a knife because it would feel very threatening. His lizard brain kicks in. He's going to feel like, wait a minute, it's me against five people. He's watched television news possibly and knows that there's an issue with police and black bodies. And so um, I do want to hold the police department accountable for making good decisions when there are crisis situations in the community. Um, Even if five people showed, all five people did not have to be there in shooting range. And that's all I'm saying. I think that um, that one police officer who's been trained to deescalate could possibly talk to him. And you've seen the hostage shows, and I know I've seen it only on TV where you have the one negotiator who's talking and only one person is doing this and everybody sort of stands back and lets that happen. And that's done for a reason. Um, So I'm hopeful that um, I'm hoping, not necessarily hopeful, but hoping that there is some work done to improve the response time and also other numbers for families to call when there's a mental health threat. Right. 22 years old, Porter Burks. Our hearts go out um, to this family. And now we're just sort of in this waiting game. You know, Kim Worthy, sometimes you can't really predict what Kim Worthy will do. You know, it's it's always a toss up because she's not afraid to take on the police. I think her and uh, Chief Craig had a, a really tumultuous <laughs> uh, relationship. But, you know, we'll see what happens. I don't want to, you know, uh, speculate around what she would do, but I'm really anxious to see uh, what her findings will be. Listen, y'all, that's going to do it uh, for Hot Takes. If you have topics that you want discussed on Authentically Detroit, you can hit us up on our socials at Authentically Detroit on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Have you always dreamed of being on the airwaves? Well, the Detroit Eastside Engage Podcast Network, or DEEP for short, is here to help make that dream a reality. Located inside the Sotomayor, the DEEP Network offers studio space and production staff to help get your podcast idea off the ground. Doesn't take a whole lot of work to get started. Just visit the Authentically Detroit page at ecn-detroit.org or call Sarah at 313-948-0344. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit, by Detroiters for Detroiters. Oh, 
This week we have a very special guest with us as the election approaches. We thought it would be cool to talk to anthropologist, cartographer, and information designer Alex B. Hill about the Detroit voting map. Alex has over 15 years of experience working with nonprofit organizations on campaigns that impact policies and communities. The Detroit voting map released after the primary elections helps us understand who's voting in the city. Alex, welcome, 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 welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a long time coming. It has. So you said something to us before the show started um, about... Uh, your love to just talk about Detroit neighborhoods. Why do you love Detroit neighborhoods so mm, much? I, I think because they're so controversial. <laughs> <laughs> In what way? Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's hard to define. Are we a city of neighborhoods? Um, what constitutes a neighborhood and who gets to define it? I think that's the, the kind of biggest question. Um, and for me, it's, you know, I'd love to see more communities actually defining their own neighborhoods. Um, you want to know what's interesting? Um, growing up in this city, I the only neighborhoods that I knew like had a name were like Indian Village, mm-hmm. uh, Parma Woods, Sherwood Forest. You know what I mean? Right. Those um, ones that got historic designation. Right. Yeah. Right. And so the neighborhoods that I lived in, I didn't know that they had names. And all of a sudden, it feels like <laughs> you know, in the 2010s, uh, neighborhood names begin to pop up all over the place. Who? facilitating oh, it's that been, it's been longer than the 2010s though it's been going on for some time i remember united way used to have the neighborhood mm-hmm. maps right yep, before yep. the city did and you know we wanted to sign the sub communities yeah. and all of this um but when you talk to most residents i was i may agree with orlando most residents i live um, on the east side say i live <laughs> on the east side now you know if you live or i live in northwest detroit you know mm-hmm. or i live in southwest detroit mm-hmm. But there's not a whole lot of, you know, um, neighborhood identification that doesn't spill over. So I think that um, usually when neighborhoods have names, you're sort of um, creating this island of privilege inside of whatever it is happening there. So all the more privileged neighborhoods always had a name. Boston Edison, you knew where that was. Mm, You know, East English Village had a name. Grandmont Rosedale had a name. But most of the places that people lived they were either not familiar with the names or it didn't matter. Like I lived on Pennington, right? And that was, I found out that was a Bagley community. I went to Bagley Elementary mm. School. I didn't think I lived in the Bagley community. I just knew I went to Bagley Elementary School and I lived on Pennington and had friends up and down the street. Um, but I think that, you know, when you define neighborhoods, I think there is also this territorial thing where you're deciding what kind of resources you're going to place inside right. of those mm, neighborhoods. Yeah how you're going to protect those mm. neighborhoods. And usually when neighborhoods have a name, they um, really function to sort of defend those boundaries, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the those sub-communities that United Way continued, those go even back to the city's master planning efforts right? Uh, when they were identifying which neighborhoods were declining or which ones had housing stock that needed to get, mm-hmm. you know, re- rehabbed and all that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it was very much... Very planning heavy, less people heavy. Yeah. You know, you had the Near East Side. I've never, is Near East Side on one of these maps right here? That was more, and that was like mm. morning side. Ooh, the, no, the Near East Side is um, 
largely where the Chrysler Freeway is after Black Bottom. That's the Near East Side. Oh, wow. See? I have books on okay. the Near East Side that Near East Siders wrote about their experiences. Huh. And you do have the North End, and people in the North End know what the North End is. So you have a mix. Um, but what ends up happening is, um, it seems to me, because everybody knew what the Cass Corridor was too, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> now I knew what the cast corridor was, and when I got home from school, folks were talking about, "Yeah, we're going to hang out in Midtown. We're going to Midtown." And I'm like, "I don't know what that is." I'm like, "Where is that?" They're like, "Over there by you know Wayne State on Cass." I'm like, "Are you talking about the cast corridor? Like it changed that quickly." You had a right? white woman in Sue Mosey moving in and declaring herself mayor of Midtown. I don't know if she declared or somebody else did, <laughs> but the mayor of Midtown um, began to you know, amass all of this land and come up with ways to really is a plan gentrification. She worked with Irving Reed, who was the um, president of Wayne State University, mm -hmm. and he was more of a real estate developer than he was an educator because he <laughs> developed a lot of real estate, including the real estate that we're on right now. And I appreciate this. Thank you, Irving, for <laughs> what you did. Um, but the, the, the net impact of it is really amazing because I see lofts being built or apartments being built right here around the cast corridor that are selling for $800,000. Mm. And it's crazy to me that in the former cast corridor, that's what's happening. My sister, one of her first jobs, my older sister, one of her first jobs was at Harbor Light, which was on Cass Avenue. And Harbor Light is now a community development organization. I think it's um, Cass Corridor Neighborhood Development Corporation. Mm -hmm. But it used to treat um, veterans. It used to treat um, substance abuse, people who had substance abuse, and people with schizophrenia, right? And mm -hmm. she was a social worker there. Um, and they're no longer welcome in this community. Cots used to be here. Remember Cots? Right, yeah. And there was the Veterans Center, And the Veterans Center, that's yep. right. Yeah, and, a lot. Yeah. And so as this became gentrified, you can't put homeless veterans around $800,000 units. No, you got to move them. And so Cots moved into a new location, bless them, and, um, and we're making way for... And NSO was over yeah. here. Neighborhood yes, Service Organization. Neighborhood Service had the... Tumani Center, and that mm -hmm. was a mess. Mm -hmm. But you know, <laughs> I don't know if you ever drove by there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think they were the last holdout for. Yeah. I, I had done a map too of uh, social services in, mm -hmm. in Midtown, and how many of them had just been kind of forced out or migrated to different locations in the city. But I got a question for you. How did you get into this? I mean, what? <laughs> because you know, we are D Donna. I think Donna and I may be a little atypical. We like to nerd out about a bunch of different things. And so we can nerd out on maps and like be there with you. But a lot of folks are just not into it. How did this happen? How did yeah. this come up for you? I don't really know. I uh, I have to go back to being a Boy Scout. Okay. To getting Take really us back. Yeah. Kind of hooked on maps and, you know, using a compass and all that stuff. Um, but then for, for Detroit, you know, I uh, I didn't really start making maps until I moved to Detroit. Um, cause that was my, that was kind of my entry point to understanding, uh, I say I grew up in a white flight suburb of Flint, Grand Blank. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. and so, you know, my experience in Detroit was you drive down for, uh, a, a, a game, game at the Tigers, a concert, yeah. Tiger Stadium. You drive down to, for like, family, when did you, my when, family loves dogs. So we went to Kobo for yeah. the dog show. When did you go show. to Flint? When, what, what did you go to Flint for? Uh, well, I, I had family in Flint. Um, mm. so my grandparents and aunts and uncles and mm -hmm. uh, everyone, uh, was still in Flint. And then I also went to high school at a, a private Catholic school What's on the school? North oh, end wow, of Flint. That's funny. <laughs> which is funny that, uh, what school, uh, powers Catholic. Oh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I want to read your words back to you and have you respond. 
Sure. Right. You said this. I launched Detroitography in 2013 to emphasize the unique way that people within the city think about space and place, their own idiosyncratic demographics and pathways and memories. My goal was to offer an array of insights as to the exact location of Detroit embedded within history, but that would also be transformative related to dominant narratives of the city. Say more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I have to, I have to start with my entry point being um, in Detroit. I was a community health worker, um, and mm. I, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily. I tell people this. I wouldn't necessarily have hired myself as a community health worker. Who did you work for? Um, at Wayne State oh. for a project there. Um, uh, and so my my entry point for Detroit was, uh, you know, acting as a counselor and sitting in people's living rooms and dining rooms and, uh, you know, talking with real Detroiters in their neighborhoods in their homes uh, and, and getting to see, you know, just the full condition of Detroit, the, the beautiful and the, the not so beautiful. Um, but, you know, that wasn't, that's not necessarily the, the primary entry point for college age white men <laughs> in the city of Detroit. Um, and, and I think from that, uh, that really gave me the base for my understanding of Detroit and then the questions that I had uh, about Detroit. Um, and most of those questions were, why is this the way it is? <laughs> mm. so, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that on the east side of Detroit, you say in here that um, neighborhoods that um, had identities, um, have strong neighborhood identities, also received, um, let's see, even from this map, we can see neighborhoods that are obviously recognizable. This neighborhood also highlights the areas of Detroit that don't have strong neighborhood identities. Hopefully, more community engagement will help neighborhoods and communities develop their own sense of identity and naming as Detroit welcomes new investments and new residents. So in the Lower East Side or in in Southeast Detroit, I think we're now calling it, Mm -hmm. there was this one area where um, a former board member of my organization um, said, why is nothing happening here? And so we decided we're going to pull all the people together and we created this boundary that looks sort of like a house. And she called me up one day and she said, I've got a name for it. And I said, what? She said, good stock. And now, <laughs> so we call it good stock. We've got t-shirts with good stock on and we have paraphernalia. There's a good stock association and it's really, really coming together. So now you have city officials talking I about the good stock neighborhood. Orlando was overseeing the work of, mm-hmm. of organizing good stock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it kind of speaks to what you're saying here where people are coming together and saying, you know what? We want our peace. Let's call ourselves something. Mm, I love that, right? Donna. But yeah, this is such absolutely. a beautiful story of residents creating their own map, and it's a really cool map. I'm going to have to get you the map, so yeah. in the next edition, you can put good stock in. Absolutely. Yeah, it looks like a house. Yes. I want to ask you this question as a follow-up to what you said. You said, you know, from your time as a community health worker and going around and talking to residents, talking to black and brown people mostly as this mm-hmm. white college-age guy, it, you said it gave you your baseline understanding of Detroit. What is that understanding? Mm. <laughs> it's broad and it's diverse. I think that was that was probably the best way uh, to start thinking about Detroit, not just you know those singular narratives that you hear either parroted by the media or in the popular books about Detroit. Uh, it's it, there's thousands of stories, um, mm. and people don't always think about that, um, or you also don't think about the stories that are. I'll say most of the folks that I got to work with were. Um, so it was parents and teenagers um, that were part of the program, uh, but then a lot of times, uh, you know, it was grandparents uh, mm. who were the caregivers for the kids too. Mm-hmm. So, 
Um, and then thinking about, you know, all the stories that are going to be lost mm-hmm. in Detroit um, because no one's really uh, kind of collecting those and engaging with those. And that's why I also, um, you know, I don't talk about Detroit as just the boundary line that outlines the city, although I will talk about that a lot and how people don't really know <laughs> where the boundary lines are and they can't draw it. Um, but it's also, you know, it's those memories, it's those feelings. Um, and like I did a mapping workshop one time with uh, students at the Bog Center. Um, and when I had the outline of Detroit and the girl came up to me, she said, that's not Detroit. That's not where I live. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was, you know, it was amazing. It was not her experience. You know, it she sounds- was not a planner looking at the outline of the city. You know, she had a sense of what her neighborhood was and where her grandma lived and where they went grocery shopping. And that was Detroit. <laughs> so Orlando, that resonates with you, what he just said, right? <laughs> sure does. You know it does. You know it does. And you, part of the reason why it resonates, like in the book, you talk about, you know, transform, transformation related to the dominant narrative. And it's interesting that as a, a book of maps, like you are correlating, you know, mapping a city with narratives and storytelling. How can maps tell stories? Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's thinking about those pathways and those experiences that people have in places um, because it's not just the physical place. It's also how that place makes you feel. Mm. Um, so I think the obvious one for uh, a lot of folks in Detroit is thinking about safety, where they feel safe, where they don't feel safe. Um, but then it's also joy, you know, where they, you know, they have, uh, the choir practice at church that just, you know, that they love going to that or, you know, the, the meals that they share at these different banquet halls or families, houses. Um, and it's not just, it's not just one place. It's all of these kind of myriad pathways that people find and take in the city um, that defines their city. So has any place changed in the city more than Corktown in recent years? <laughs> uh, I mean, besides Midtown and Downtown, because they got all the money. Um, I don't know. Uh, Corktown is definitely a whole different, <laughs> a whole different spot. Corktown, it just, I, I, I'm looking at your maps on Corktown. Yeah. And the physical maps have really oh, shifted. right, right, yeah. Um, and then the population seems to have shifted and the price points have skyrocketed right. in a neighborhood that does not necessarily have obvious charms to people just driving through mm-hmm. other than proximity to um, Soul's Barbecue <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> the old Tiger Stadium, I guess now, um, um, you know, Detroit Pale. But it's hard for me um, to, to understand that at the same time, so many old time Corktown residents have been pushed out, right? right. Yeah. And a lot of them, from what I'm hearing from some people, were Mexican. Yeah, right. That was uh, right near South. A lot of the uh, a lot of the early Mexican Americans um, in Detroit were in Corktown, yeah. um, and they actually, you know, for the most part, had to lie uh, about their heritage. Um, a lot of them would say that they were Spanish or Spaniards, mm-hmm. so that they could <laughs> buy houses um, in Corktown because otherwise they weren't going to get a home. Um, but that's that's kind of why why there is that. Uh, I mean, immigrant populations generally um, kind of land in the same neighborhoods and and you know grow from there. Um, and so that's you know why we have Mexican town and um, kind of that heritage that has reigned so close to Corktown. Yeah, but what has happened to their stories? You know, when you mm-hmm. talk about the stories and the pathways mm-hmm, to joy, right? mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. happens to the stories of people mm-hmm. who have literally been pushed? Out. Right. Mm. Yeah. Right. Because those aren't the stories of Corktown that you yeah. hear about. It's mm. Detroit's oldest neighborhood. And it's all, you know, from County Cork and the Irish. And you don't get all of the the kind of 
you know, it was Mexican-Americans, it was Syrian-Americans, it was, it was such a diverse group of folks that were there. It's really interesting to me that we're having this conversation with you on Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, I, I, I think it's a perfect fit, <laughs> really, when we talk about the colonialization of the city of Detroit. Um, and it's, it's morphosis into a predominantly black city um, in the second half of the 20th century. And what really comes front of mind for me um, is, number one, the suburbanization of Detroit, but the borders, what you describe mm-hmm. in your right. book, the borders of Detroit, and we're bordering so many, you know, suburbs. Talk about talk about why that was important for you to highlight. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I think a lot of our because also Detroit is this concept, right, that goes beyond the city's borders. There's all these people who left Detroit um, for various reasons. Um, that would be a whole other show. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it, those borders and the way they were drawn really have kind of situated Detroit in its region uh, and for the regional trouble that we still have. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the small suburbs that, you know, are all around the edges of Detroit, uh, they exist because people, they got together and said, we don't want to be annexed by Detroit. Um, but then those those same towns then became sundown towns uh, where black people were not welcome. Um, and they've kind of, they've remained and they've, they've kind of kept those really strong barrier lines. Yeah. Um, the, I think the best example is Gross Point Park. You know, they keep trying to actually build a barrier um, between the city uh, and their, I don't know if they're a city. Are they a village? A Whatever. City. Gross Point Park. It's Park. a city. It's a city. Yeah. So with a mayor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. I think it's important to understand, though, if you're my age and, um, you know, we're close and you grew up in Detroit in the 1970s when Coleman Young became mayor. Um, I went to Mercy High School, which is in Farmington Hills. And most of my classmates who were white and lived in the suburbs said, oh, I've never come to Detroit. I've never mm-hmm. been to Detroit. That's why I asked you about your relationship with Flint, because oh, yeah. what I found is they didn't come to Detroit ever. And so it kind of boggles the mind where some of them are my Facebook friends now. And, you know, bygones, let bygones be got bygones, but they're all repping Detroit now. It's cool to rep Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And as a Detroiter who watched the um, racial injustice, the economic injustice play out, it's kind of hard to say, you know, it's, you know, and, and now they're coming into Detroit and it's like our city. And, you know, I think a lot of legacy black Detroiters are kind of like, huh? Wait a minute. Um, I'm not saying we have to be first among equals, but I am saying that there should be as much effort and intention to keep our neighborhoods attacked. And the same thing with Mexican Detroiters. So I have Mexican friends whose parents have been here, families have been here as long as mine right. since 1919. Immigrants, immigrants. They might be swept up by ice because of how they look. But right. they, you know, there's a claim we have to a city where we built things and other people turned off the lights and left. And in more and more mm-hmm, neighborhoods, mm-hmm, I think people mm-hmm. are even arguing whether gentrification is happening here. Right. And um, I don't even understand how anybody can credibly have that argument. But, um, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, <laughs> that is I not mean, happening. <laughs> no, they, there are people who say, it was on Facebook a couple weeks ago, somebody said, was quoting Alan Malik in his book, mm. Divided City, where he says, um, there's no gentrification. And, you know, sometimes that's the problem with statisticians and data people who sit 
and look at things from a mile away. You were right. door to door. You know what I'm talking about. Well, mm-hmm. let's let's hold oh, yeah. that thought. We're going to ask him about that when we come back, and we're also going to ask him about the voting oh, maps that yeah. you created after the primaries. More with Alex B. Hill after this quick break. Bridge Detroit is your news and engagement platform that is telling the stories of Detroit is rooted by community priorities. Started in 2020 by Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Stephen Henderson, the newsroom has already established its footing as the go-to source for hyper-local perspectives that asks the hard questions, brings accountability, and searches out real solutions. It's free to become a member of this award-winning news organization. Visit BridgeDetroit.com today to sign up to receive the news delivered right to your inbox. Bridge Detroit. By Detroiters, for Detroiters. Founded in 2021, the Stoudemire is a membership-based community recreation and wellness center centrally located on the east side of Detroit. Membership in the Stoudemire is available on a sliding scale for up to $20 per year or 20 hours of volunteer time. The Stoudemire offers art, dance, and fitness classes, community meetings and events, resource fairs, pop-up events, the neighborhood tech hub, and more. Members who are residents of the east side have access to exclusive services in the wellness network. Join today and live well play well, be well. Visit ecn-detroit.org. Welcome back to Authentically Detroit. We are here with Alex B. Hill and we are having a fascinating conversation about Detroit maps, storytelling, gentrification. Donna Mm. and Alex, you guys were getting ready to make a point about how neighborhoods change. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, I was just pointing out that you have some researchers who stand back and say gentrification isn't happening here. But you having been a community health worker going door to door and really looking at the neighborhood from a much more granular point of view, tell me what you see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and I've, uh, on my blog I've written about this, and it's gentrification isn't just data. There's a whole lot more that goes into it. Um, and, you know, sure, if you just look at the data and if you just look at the, you know, sanitized G word, maybe it's not really happening like it's happening in other cities. Because Detroit isn't like any other city. Um, And if you want to talk about gentrification, you have to go back and just look at the mass disinvestment in neighborhoods uh, and the people of Detroit. So we need an applause button for that. (laughs) (laughs) I I think another thing to think about is, um, and this also kind of goes with the neighborhoods conversation, uh, you know, Wayne State University sits on an urban renewal site. Mm. Like we are the site of where people essentially, you know, colonized land to take it. Uh, Mathai Playfield, the only reason it's being mass developed now is because Wayne State claimed it back in uh, the 50s and 60s when urban renewal is happening. Um, so, uh, you know, you have that. That's just an example of, of one program in Detroit, but, um, you know, that's happened kind of consecutively over what, and over. What else is looked at? You said it's not just the data. What else is it, though? I mean, it's more broadly, you really got to look at at kind of policy that gets implemented. Um, and I think policy is where you see gentrification really playing out. And um, culture. Yeah, absolutely. Culture. What right. I see is neighborhood after neighborhood becoming more expensive 
than the people who grew up in the neighborhood can afford to live in. Mm-hmm. And I said, because I can't go back to EEV if I wanted to. <laughs> I'm still you know, I was like, we, we we were on a tour of the East Side, and somebody said, "What are the housing values?" And um, somebody said, probably said, "Well, you know, it's about three hundred thousand dollars." And I said, "You know, that sounds good." Unless you used to live there and you can't afford you can't a $300,000 home. Mm-hmm. That's the problem with gentrification is so many people are pushed out of places that they used to claim as their own where right. they had that joy. Some of the businesses and institutions that used to exist aren't there. And some of them are replaced by establishments that don't really cater to the taste of longtime Detroiters. Right. Yeah. And, and I think the other... I mean, the other data that folks don't always look to is is where those investment dollars are going, um, and and you can see, you know, I think we're going to talk about the voting map too, but um, the those areas of investment are are the ones where people are are more comfortable. They're able to go and vote. They have the <laughs> the disposable income to um, you know throw some extra into their home, or uh, you know they're not living uh, in that that kind of precarious position that a lot of Detroiters are. One day we'll talk about the role of murals. In no. helping to facilitate displacement, this art that was revolutionary, radical art that has now been appropriated by people who are trying to create cool urban feel. Um, when I see murals going up, I know something else is about to happen. <laughs> Maybe not, but I see some correlation. Do you see that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that's I think that's one of the one of the markers of of kind of neighborhood change too, because they'll paint the new name on the wall. <laughs> right. It's, like, it's oh. that and the white woman walking her dog <laughs> in the hood. It's like, oh, it's just, this is, <laughs> you know, because if we're honest, you know, and I don't even know if the data says this, but um, Andre Perry says this, that, you know, the, the mere presence of white people engineers market movement just mm-hmm. by showing up which is which is fascinating to me mm-hmm. i want to switch gears a little bit because a lot of folks may be thinking about the upcoming midterm elections that are coming up i have my absentee ballot at home i'm going to fill it out because typically i'm zigzagging the city on election day interviewing folks in the pri- during the primaries um you notice that there is a trend of people reporting on voter turnout that wasn't accurate. First off, tell me what you saw <laughs> and then tell us what you created. Yeah, well, so I saw a lot of folks um kind of going through and highlighting the precinct that had the highest voter turnout. Um but I had also pulled the data from uh the Wayne County um clerk uh, and if you combined the the absentee voting with the in person voting, um, it was actually a different part of the city where more people showed up to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, you know, Palmer Woods versus Grandmont Rosedale. Yeah, and you know, which having, isn't surprising. <laughs> but go ahead, because no, I was saying, you know, I used to live in both. I was grew up and was a child lived in Palmer Woods, and as a um, young mother, I lived in Grandmont Rosedale, and I can tell you the difference. Grandmont Rosedale is a well organized community. It's very cohesive. And people act with common purpose there. It is if anybody had to put together a storybook neighborhood, they would have a park in the middle, a community house, and kids playing soccer there. Um, you, that's different. You, almost at one point, almost every nonprofit executive in Detroit lived in Grandma <laughs> Rosedale, and so they brought that whole nonprofit vibe with them. Whereas Palmer Woods is um, more singular, more individualistic, and so people don't have the same. I don't think activism or same pride and connection to the city in Palmer Woods as they do in Grandmont Rosedale. Um, I, I I just found that the culture and the climate was completely different. Right, right. 
Now, it's been yeah. years since I lived in either place, so <laughs> I could be wrong, but that's just my memory. And even when I talk to people in both places now, it seems like things are similar. Where did you see the least folder turnout? Where, where, what was lacking? Oh, uh, I mean, it was wide, wide swaths of the city where voter turnout was really low. Um, and I, I, that's not, that's We're nothing new. about an overall you know? turnout of about, what, 15%, right? Yeah. Right. Yes. So, you know, the mayor, every time he's been elected, has been with less than 21% yeah. of, and why, of registered voters who yeah. even show up. Because yeah, so, half a million people are eligible to vote in the city of Detroit. Right? Well, and that's not true either, is it? Because if Detroit has 640,000 people, half a million of them can't be a voting age, I don't think. I think that the other aspect of it is that, um, you know, the the... Declines in the vote, registered voters lags because of the laws that don't allow you to take people off the voter rolls and that kind of thing. And maybe mm-hmm. even a little bit of the clerk's mm-hmm. um, negligence. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I don't, you know, I'm not here to talk about the clerk. But <laughs> we can um, talk about the clerk if but we I, need to you talk know, about the clerk. But one thing I was really looking at and interested in, and I don't know if you can talk to this, is the areas where Sri Thanadar did the best. <laughs> um, I was trying to see where they were, and I noticed that the areas that ECN is in, he did not do as well as he did in some other areas. Did you notice a pattern to that? Mm, I can't say that I totally remember the areas where he did best. Okay. Um, but I mean, I, I know a lot of folks, and maybe it was actually Orlando commenting on, on social media about the guy was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like he was. he was line dancing with people here and he was eating barbecue <laughs> over there and stopping in at church over here. So, I mean, the guy has a lot of money and he had a lot of time. No, no doubt. But I, I also found that areas where you have more neighborhood organization mm. and more informed and engaged people, you didn't see the same trends as you did where he was everywhere because he right, was sometimes true. walking into a void of other kind of community organizing activity. He also did really well downriver, right. not oh, including no some of the Detroit neighborhoods. And, you know, like it's, it's, it's really interesting, number one, um, to see the trends and how people vote by neighborhood, right? And, de- and depending upon like who has access to those really, really hard to reach populations. Right. Because I guarantee you the reason why there are swaths and swaths of the city that had no voter turnout are also swaths and swaths where those folks are really hard to reach. My question is, can you can you add some narrative around why a Grant Mart Rosedale and a Palmer Woods would have the highest turnout. What's, what's, what's different there? Yeah, I think a big part of it is, is what Donna noted, is that, that kind of civic pride, um, the community organization, um, and that, that doesn't exist everywhere. Income, the, well, that look, level of middle just, income, I, oh, yeah. money, I mean, college don't, attainment. Don't the politicians also work to advance the interests of people who live in communities like that? That vote? Seems like a whole lot of people you do not think, yeah. feel as though politicians are campaigning on their priorities. And if you're not campaigning on my priorities, I'm not going to show up. I mean, if they were... Mm-hmm. Or I, answering I, my questions. Or answering my questions. I think that's yeah. part of what's broken about democracy right now is the purchasing of politics, the fact that... Um, you That's know, a book title, no- by the way. <laughs> purchasing of politics. We need to coin that. Please all continue. Right, all right. Um, <laughs> Copyright. This, this idea that, you know, so we have so many people who have needs. I mean, we did a forum, right, Orlando? We yeah. did a 13th Congressional District forum, and I asked a question about homelessness. And 
almost every candidate responded the same. They talked about mental health mm. as though homelessness was a consequence of untreated mental health. And we already talked mm-hmm. about the need for more mental health treatment. Right. But earlier in the forum, we had talked about housing prices and gentrification, and people aren't connecting the dots with actual proposals and policies that are going to put people in homes. There's this idea that if everybody, even though you may know the housing is really expensive, you're still thinking they're probably mentally ill. Now, mind you, people being mentally ill and homeless is not cool. I've got a staff person who told me last week that he had been mentally ill and living on the streets for 20 years, 20, mm. 25 years, and he was a Marine, mm. and came back and lived on the streets, and God bless America, he is working for us, got a home, doing extremely well, a wonderful person. But, um, and I really want to have him on here one time so he can tell his story. Yeah. But the idea that you have throwaway people, and it's okay, um, is one thing. The other aspect of it is that we're not looking at the structural forces that keep people out of their homes. And if I'm a voter and you're not talking about my basic needs of housing, if you're not talking about um, tax foreclosures, if you're not talking about water shutoffs and and repairing some of those harms right now, I may not mm-hmm. feel motivated to vote. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's almost like mental health is the new thoughts and prayers. Like you can't just throw that Ooh. out as a blanket for everything. Zingers. Yeah. Zingers. Uh, Alex is and, bringing it today, <laughs> isn't he? Listen, I, but, you know, I want to add, go ahead, finish. It, well, I was just going to say the same, you know, I, I've, I've worked at Wayne state for, as a community health worker on a chronic disease for a number of years. And then at the health department on chronic disease. And it's the same, you know, I, I can't get people's time to talk about cardiovascular disease or diabetes there's, you know, they're trying to think about paying the bill for the the house or the utilities or get food on the table or there's so many other issues that, you know, voting is not not well, up there. I, I, I still believe that two things. One, emergency management stole people's voting power right. and yep. it's hard to give people back a sense of power and civic pride. Two... We're not, we don't have candidates running on the needs and issues of people in this community. How many people went up there and said, we don't want shot spotter? Mm-hmm. Okay. Went to a forum, said we don't want it. And we're still talking about spending $7 million on shot spotter. Well, if we don't find it there, we'll find it somewhere else. We're still right. talking right. about it. Mm-hmm. Alex, uh, I, I believe just because, because I'm a nerd and I'm sure Donna believes this too, that maps are essential to democracy, the democratization of data. Um, and information from your vantage point, because you're constantly looking at this stuff. What is the state of democracy in our city? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, not good. <laughs> I really? mean, I think say more. <laughs> I think the voter turnout really is just one one example. I mean, we have uh, all of these areas of the city where we really lack uh, the kind of community organizations, the kind of uh, even investment. Uh, from the city or from nonprofits, um, like Don and oh, throwaway people. We have these throwaway neighborhoods that are just not mm-hmm. getting any focus whatsoever. Um, even though every neighborhood is supposed to have a future. Um, <laughs> that was a good slogan, wasn't it? <laughs> it's great marketing. Um, so we know who came up with that. We know the person who coined that. <laughs> um, and it's great for marketing when you want to, you know, sell all of your vacant land so you can have a bigger tax base. Uh, but you know the. The, the long and short of it is we still have these neighborhoods that are throwaway and uh, there's so much not happening um, mm. all across the city uh, that 
you know, it's just too easy to pick out these pockets all the time and say, oh, we know this, we know what's happening here, we know the name of this neighborhood, but we don't know everything else. One of the things you worked with on is a project with Jackson Copel on Mm. outlining the energy grid. Can you talk about that and your findings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we we were specifically looking at uh, at DTE Energy and their... um, their kind of grid capacity, uh, grid infrastructure upgrades, um, because they're you know they're in this rate case right now, asking the Michigan Public Service Commission for basically a nine percent increase, um, even though they've already increased rates uh, since 2015 <laughs> and gotten 477 million dollars uh, from tech, from ratepayers, um, and and so we looked at you know are they serving everyone in the same way with the same you know everyone's paying for the same rate. Uh, are they getting the same level of service? And they're not. Uh, Detroiters uh, who are in predominantly uh, black and brown communities are being served by outdated and ancient and dangerous, maybe not ancient, but outdated and dangerous infrastructure uh, where places like greater downtown, um, which, you know, who knows what that is, but um, it's become (laughs) its own kind of (laughs) um, spatial marker in the city. But greater downtown, you know, it's all upgraded. You can easily add electronic vehicle um, charging stations because the grid can handle it. Um, It can't handle it in the neighborhoods of Detroit. Um, and there is no plan that we've seen that they're going to upgrade um, these communities again who've been disinvested in uh, for decades. And that was really shocking to me when the um, most recent infrastructure bill passed and um, some people came to the city. I think Rashida Tlaib brought somebody from, um, oh my goodness, I don't even remember where she was from, so I'm embarrassed. The EPA? The EPA, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I got your back. EPA, thank you. My back needs <laughs> having today. No, I got your but, back. <laughs> Um, but she she brought somebody from the EPA, and they were talking about the fact that these funds were supposed to be deployed in the most vulnerable communities. And, you know, the entire city of Detroit is considered most vulnerable. And what ends right. up happening is the most socially vulnerable people and neighborhoods in the city of Detroit almost never get prioritized by the mayor or by um, council or, or by the state. And so... Um, when you, I didn't know anything about these grid issues until Jackson came and talked to a group of us in Detroit 21. And I was um, kind of blown away mm. because here we are pushing solar and electric vehicles and not understanding that if we actually did the things that we are trying to get people to do, our grid would not be able to sustain these changes. Right. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. that means that and I'm sure it's not just Detroit that um, our federal government, state governments, and city governments have got to prioritize investing in neighborhood grids if they're really going to see the turnabout. Because the people who are living in these communities where they ha- their grids are updated, they already have solar. A lot of right. them, that's where you see most of the solar. Um, the change is going to come about when it's coming to the neighborhoods. Is that true? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, about solar? Or? Yeah, I mean, about the, 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 the change. I mean, we'll get more people with solar, more people with electric vehicles, but the, right now what we're seeing is um, where you live helps determine whether or not you already have solar or electric oh, yeah. vehicles. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, because the grid is not, it's not equal. And Jenna Brooker at Bridge Detroit and Nina over at Planet Detroit, we, can, we are continuing to report on that. So make... Shameless plug. Check out our coverage <laughs> at Bridge Detroit. We are talking about it. And actually, the latest story right now is that the Michigan Public Service Commission on last Wednesday issued an order for its staff to conduct an audit around... Well, to uh, get a third-party audit. And a third-party audit that, is, the, that the utilities are going to pay for. DTE and consumers are going to pay for this um, to really look at... 
um, number one, outages, um, their systems and, you know, whether or not they're working and if they've been in accordance to state law. So this is going to be interesting. The the story is still being written on there. Alex, what you got coming up before we have to go? Because we got to go. We're over time. (laughs) Oh, man. More maps. Always. More maps. Um, Yeah. Detroitography.com. Will you come back and see us? Oh, for sure. We absolutely love this conversation. Yes. Yeah. You want to talk about maps? I'm here. Yeah. Okay. And you know what? And, and you need to come to the east side. Um, we would love to work with you on some oh, of this. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you do contract work? Huh? All right. Y'all yeah. hit up Alex. What's your personal website? Uh, AlexBHill.org. All right. AlexBHill.org. Thank you for coming on. Listen, if you have topics that you want to discuss on Authentically Detroit, hit us up on our socials at Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Authentically Detroit, or you can email us at AuthenticallyDetroit at gmail.com. It is time for shout outs. Donna, let's start with you. You got any shout outs? Yes. I want to shout out Beth. Bethany Howard, who is um, one of our young um, managers. She was in the Free Press this weekend. It was really cool. She's been working on... The Sunday paper. The Sunday paper. She's been working on a Rain Ready Homes project where um, we're assessing um, the um, plumbing and assessing and helping to design... Um, plumbing solutions through black backflow preventer valves as well as green infrastructure in homes inside of flood zones. And she's got six done, six mm. backflow preventer um, valves and five rain gardens. Um, she was highlighted because of her great leadership. And I'm just really proud of her. I um, made a very corny joke because um, apparently she grew up in Orlando's family's church, mm. New Rising Star <laughs> Missionary Baptist Church. And I said, she's our New Rising Star. Oh. Um, but also... <laughs> this is true. Um, shout out to um, Gwen Winston and Lottie Spady. We had a staff retreat on Friday. And shout out to all of the staff who participated. I'm telling you, if you're looking for people to build power in your staff and build teamwork, Gwen and Lottie are amazing. I knew it before the retreat, but we all walked away feeling like we could, you know, cure all the problems in the world. Um, it's great to have people help lift you into this work because it's so easy to get burned out. Yeah. Alex, do you have any shout outs? Mm, I'm going to shout out We The People Michigan, Yeah, um, which is where I work. Uh, they're doing some um, incredible work both around uh, pushing against ShotSpotter uh, and this kind of focus on police uh, as the solution and alternative. Um, and then also, you know, really pushing this um, uh, equity issue, utility redlining, um, looking at DT and consumers. All right. I would like to shout out uh, our Olivia Lewis at Bridge Detroit and Aaron Einhorn. I don't know if you guys remember this, but in July of 2021, uh, Bridge Detroit worked with NBC to publish, a, to co-publish an article and series on the Burwood Wall. We called it mm. the Wailing Wall. And we brought so much light and attention to that story over there. And today, um, Jamon Jordan and other folks from the city um, and neighbors around the Burwood Wall uh, erected their historical marker uh, for that landmark over there. And I want this to be an illustration around the power of narrative. We told that story and I know that the telling of that story, right, and the sourcing of those residents who lived through that uh, was a great push toward getting this historical marker over there. So shout out to journalists uh, who (laughs) we worked, we worked for months, months on that story for telling the stories and we're able to see some some of the needle being moved and Jamon Jordan amazing amazing speech today we covered it um so I'm really happy uh that the you know those folks over there and that history is being acknowledged and mm-hmm. named and mapped Absolutely. because it's so important 
All right, y'all. That's going to do it for this episode of Authentically Detroit. We will see you next time. Until then, we want you to catch the wave. <laughs>